Well, that's some high expectations there. Uh, we love David. Um, okay, if I haven't met you yet, my name is Beth Guckenberger, and I am part of the teaching team here at North Star. It's my joy to join the Live Like Jesus series, and I just spent a couple of days uh, away with my husband alone, which this like side PSA, if you are married, I can't encourage you enough to make sure you set aside time where you spend uh, with each other, that you're not co-parenting or co-managing or co-working or you're just enjoying each other's company. I always say vacation Todd, vacation Beth are a lot of fun. But um, (laughs) the story I'm gonna tell you uh, today would be an example of how we were not living so much like Jesus and we were not vacation Todd and vacation Betha. We we were in, uh, the the story I wanna start out with you today, we was, a Saturday and we, we got in a fight and honestly for the life of us, we cannot remember what the fight was that started. Do you know, does that ever happen to you? Or like, you even have like a famous fight in your relationship and you're like, what did that, how did that even get started? Because what happens is over, over the course of the conflict, you end up fighting about how it is you're fighting instead of what it is that you're actually fighting about. And he talks really loud and I talk really fast and that's not a great combination. So as that thing was escalating on this Saturday, we decided to go into our room where we'd have verbal privacy. And I, as you know, time kind of stands still when you're in that kind of conflict. I'm not sure how exactly how long we were in it, but then one of our sons knocked on the door and said he needed a ride up to the high school for a basketball game. And Todd looked over at me and he goes, uh, I'll be right back. I said, no worries, I'll be right here. And uh, <laughs> as soon as he left that room, I, can't, I, I, didn't, I was alone with my thoughts. I didn't like what I was thinking. I didn't like what I remembered I had been saying. Like, I was, I was feeling what the Bible talks about, like conviction. But I also had tons of adrenaline going through me. And it wasn't like I felt like sitting down at my desk and like opening up my Bible to the first Kings. Like, I knew that I needed Jesus, but I wasn't, you, you're still like kind of all worked up with your said nature. And so I had been doing this practice in that season where I had been listening to my audio Bible. And I, I was listening to it in the morning when I was getting ready, or I'd listen to it in the car. And, and I remember distinctly telling Jesus, I'm not so sure I want to come to you, but you are welcome to come to me. And I laid down on my bed and I opened up my Bible app and I just hit play. And I just let the, 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 the audio scriptures being read to me I just allowed it to do what the Bible does. Like it calmed me down and it calibrated my thinking. And the Bible talks a lot about like set your mind on things above and take every thought captive and renew your mind. And that's what that was doing for me. About 15 minutes later, Todd came barreling in the room and he had not been listening to his audio Bible. <laughs> but poor thing, you can't, come, you can't come in and start yelling at your wife if she's laying on her bed listening to her Bible, you know? And so... He just came in and settled down next to me. And I promise you, the first thing that we heard as soon as he was settled was out of Luke 11, and it says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. And um, it wasn't like in that moment, I turned to him and said, wow, I think all that you've been saying today is right and I'm wrong. Like, it wasn't like, It wasn't like it all disappeared, but in that moment we realized there was something more important than being right or being heard, and that was being unified. And that's the Jesus idea for today. What does it sound like 
to be unified among the body and in our relationships because we can divide and hurt people we love like our families. We can definitely divide and hurt people that we don't even like that are different than us. And if we don't protect those relationships, they break. And then we have a spiritual enemy who literally dances on the grave of our broken marriages and our divided houses and our split churches. And we're gonna talk today about that spiritual enemy. We don't, I don't necessarily mean North Star, but in the capital C church, we don't talk a lot about hell. We don't talk a lot about the devil. We don't, we don't name him in that way, but just probably because it's hard to hear. But just because we don't talk about it doesn't mean that it's not real. First John 3, 8 says, the reason the son of man appeared was to destroy the devil's work. What kind of work is the devil doing? He's doing things like filling us with despair and stoking us with pride. And he's planting seeds of doubt and he's tempting us towards sin and he's dividing the body and he's coming for us every day. And if we ignore him, then he runs around unencumbered and, una and we're unaware. And a couple of years ago, I wrote a book about spiritual warfare. And in the research for that book, I learned that about a quarter of everything that Jesus said was about a world we cannot see. If we ignore this spiritual realm, we end up missing much of what's happening around us. And today I'm going to, uh, about three quarters of what I'm gonna talk about is about a world that we cannot see. And I recognize in this next 30 minutes, it will be out of balance. I'm just trying to write the scales and make sure that we're hyper aware of the spiritual world that's happening around us. Well, that passage that Todd and I ended up listening to out of Luke 11 is the passage we'll take a look at today. Read along with me here in verse 14. It says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. And I just want to stop there right right away and just whatever that looks like in your mind paint that picture of Jesus driving out a demon I want you to be very clear these are not rivals of the same size sometimes when we see artistic depictions of spiritual warfare we see like an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other or we see like some kind of like cosmic wrestling match with these like heavenly beings and the the, the evil and the light look like they're about size, the same they've been drawn to the same scale but these are not rivals of the same size in any way any evil standing up to the power of god will be driven out like that's how that works there's a, a lots of examples that we could go to in scripture to, to verify that truth. Uh, I like, you know how much I like the book of Exodus. There's a, if you look at Egyptian art depicting the time when Pharaoh was in charge and Pharaoh was the physical human embodiment of the evil that was, that was hurting God's kids, that was enslaving God's family. And he used to put his arm out like this. In Egyptian times, your arm out like this was a sign of strength and power. In fact, much of the art, I should have brought some images that you could just Google it when you get home. But like, he's holding the hair of the Jewish people. They're dangling from his hands. Like, I have so much power and might, I can hold them up by my hand. And of course, we have modern day's example where people raise their arms like this, demonstrating an evil kind of power. And I, this isn't even the right way to say it, but it's almost like Jesus had a sense of humor in that book of Exodus, because when God told Moses, of course, after he decided to, to free his people from Pharaoh's power through the use of those plagues, and that last plague broke the back of Pharaoh, and they go down to the edge of the Red Sea, what's, what's God tell Moses to do? Raise your right arm. 
You wanna show them? We're gonna show them what happens through the power of a raised arm. I'm gonna split the ocean in half. And if you look at Isaiah chapter 53, the first verse says, to whom of the arm of the Lord, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And the rest of that chapter is the, prof- the prophecy about the one who will stretch his arm out across a cross and will bear the sin of the whole wide world. That's the kind of arm that God has. It doesn't compare to any kind of demon that might come up against him. In fact, a couple of chapters before Moses raising his right arm in front of the Red Sea, we read in Exodus chapter 10, where Pharaoh says to his magicians, could y'all come up with a plague as cool as the plagues that are being demonstrated by the God of Moses? Because I'd like our people to understand that your power is as powerful as the power we're seeing demonstrated currently through the God of Moses. And those magicians come back and say, all of our power combined does not compare to the power that's found in the finger of their God. So whatever you need to do to right-size evil and darkness versus good and light, draw it to scale. When Jesus is coming against a demon, he's gonna drive it out. That's how this works. When the demon is left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. Of course they were amazed. Could you imagine seeing a demonstration of the power of God against darkness? It's something he invites us to see every single day. You don't really know what to do with it. It says here, some of them said by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Like they don't don't understand. They'd only seen evil like that demonstrated. Others tested Jesus by asking him for a sign from heaven. And Jesus, who knew their thoughts, said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a house divided against itself will fall. Because the devil wants to hurt God's kids because hurting God's kids hurts God. And that's what he would like to have happen. Here we see one of his very typical tricks where he's trying to confuse people who are trying to understand what they are seeing in front of their eyes. And the enemy's always trying to, to, to not let us see what it is that God is actually doing. Still today, what he wants us to see, are, he wants us to see our fear. He wants us to focus on our fears. He wants us to divide against ourselves. He wants us to be angry and judgmental of one another because if we end up spending emotional and physical energy on that, we don't have any time or any, any, anything left in the tank for the work of the kingdom, which is the call to love one another. Satan will go on, I'm sorry, Jesus will go on to say, if Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim I drive out demons by Beelzebub. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your followers drive them out? He, he's, he's trying to poke a hole in their kind of convolute and n- nonsense. Jesus is, he's, lo- he's like logically addressing their accusations. He'll do it for us today. We all have accusations that are coming against us. Things, the accuser, John 8 says it's his native language. All he knows how to do is accuse and lie. He lies at us all the time. Jesus will stand up to those accusations for us. He'll tell us the truth if we want him to. Most of the time, we end up just swallowing those accusations, hook, line, and sinker, because they're loud or they're familiar or we, understand, we hear them often or, or they're coming from sources we thought were trusted and we take in people's lies and accusations. That's, that's nonsense. But he's saying, Jesus is like, hey, listen, if I'm a demon, I'm driving out demons. That doesn't even make any sense. Like then you have like civil war in your own little kingdom. Like, like if I'm driving out the demon, I gotta be the opposite kind of power. What kind of demon would drive out a demon? 
If I drive out demons by the finger of God, he's of course referencing that out of Exodus, and the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man had trusted and then divides up his plunder. There's only one kind of armor that can ever protect us, the kind the Bible talks about in Ephesians chapter six. It's a spiritual armor, the armor of God. It's a, this is a call for us to guard our house with the strongest kind of power there is, not to trust on our own resources or our own understanding or our own strength, but to use the cross kind of power. That's, that's the only power that will defeat that which is coming for us in trying to plunder us. That's how high the stakes are. It says that he is dis, he's disarming this enemy, like he's taking that which he's trying to use to hurt us out of his hands. It's an idea Paul will talk about a bunch in the letters he writes to the early church. What comes to my mind is Colossians chapter two, verse 15, where he says, Jesus having disarmed the principalities and powers made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them at the cross. And because that power of God lives in us, we can take that which is coming against us out of the hands of our enemy because we have his power inside of us. When I started to work on that book on spiritual warfare, it really came out of an experience where I was in a room with a bunch of Christians who were not getting along. And I was trying to use my own like ideas and experiences and to try to like get us all on the same page and it wasn't working. I could. I couldn't see, but I could almost see the enemy just plugging ears and distorting words and dividing lines and stirring fear. And I just said to them, listen, hey, I had an agenda today, but I'm not the only person with an agenda. If we could look at the enemy's agenda, what did he write down he wanted to have happen in our time together today? And they just all stared at me because that's a dumb question. It's a weird question. And I said, do you understand? We have an enemy, he's, he's trying to hurt us. He wants to hurt God's kids doing God's work among God's house. This is his work, First John 3, 8. The reason the son of man appeared was to destroy the devil's work, trying to hurt God's kids in God's house, doing his kingdom kind of activity. And I said, well, what kinds of things has he done? Like we call, him, we call the enemy wise and ser like a serpent and we call him smart, but I don't actually think he's that smart. Every trick he's ever used is all that he ever has. There's nothing new that enemy can do to us. So like, what, what do we know? We already know his playbook. What kinds of things does he like to do? And this lady told me, I think he wants us not to trust each other or you. I'm like, absolutely. And I pulled this whiteboard behind me and I wrote up there, distrust, he loves it. And somebody goes, I think he would want us to be afraid. I said, oh my gosh, he loves fear. Fear, it paralyzes us. It takes us into stasis. That's his favorite thing to do is to make us afraid. And then for the next hour, we just vulnerably shared the ways in which we had fallen prey to enemy activity and temptation. And at the end of that hour, and I looked at that whiteboard full of the kinds of activities the enemy likes to do among God's house and God's kids and God's family. I said, listen, I wanna work with you against this. I don't wanna work against you in any way perpetuating any of this. And then I told them, I opened up to Ephesians chapter six and we read about that armor of God. And I said, God tells us to put on this armor because he recognizes the battle that's happening is in a world we cannot see. And then I opened up to 1 Peter chapter five. It says there's, a line, there's an enemy that we have. Whether we talk about him or not, he's there. 
and he's roaring around like a lion and he's trying to literally destroy you. Like, I want to make sure that we say loud and clear how high the stakes are. He wants to destroy your mind. Destroy it. He wants to destroy your family. He would like to destroy this church and all that it stands for. That's what that enemy is roaring around trying to do. And I tell them, the problem is when I read those two verses right next to each other, like I just did to you, it gives me the impression I'm supposed to put my arm around and wait for the lion to come get me. But if I already know everything he's going to do, why do I have to wait around for him to come get me? Why can't I go get him first? What would it look like for us to be spiritually aggressive against this lion? We already know there's more power in us. The finger of God, his power in us is stronger. Anything, anytime we come against him, we know it has to submit. These are not rivals of the same scale. We don't have anything to be afraid of. What would that look like? And, and then I told them, amen, amen. And then I told him that uh, I was in one time in Israel and we were studying the Roman Empire because we went on to Asia Minor to study the, the spread of the early church and the influence of the Roman Empire on that activity. And they took us to this like gladiator arena and it was a pretty intact ruin. You could still see the stairs, the stone stairs and the big arena. And I, I, didn't, I didn't actually know that much about gladiators. Everything I knew I learned from Russell Crowe. And so <laughs> like I, I learned while we were there that gladiator games function much like track meets. You ever been to a track meet where you have varying events that stack up against each other. And one of the most popular pinnacle events in a gladiator game is when they would take two gladiators and chain them up together and they would release them against a wild animal. And if the two gladiators could work together and communicate well and trust each other, their intellect, their human intellect, their strategy, their smarts, their strength defeated the animal every time. But if they didn't work together, listen to each other, trust each other, if they played to the crowd, then that animal won every time. And let's just be very clear, if the animal won, the people died. And Paul understood that cultural context. That's why in a couple of his letters, he would write to the early churches, we have been chained together. And if we don't listen to each other, work together, trust one another, then that animal's gonna win. That prowling lion who wants to divide us is gonna win every time. And what are, how high are the stakes? He'd like to literally destroy us. He'd like us to die. That's how high those stakes are. And so today, like my husband and I, we, we have this daily practice where we say to each other, like, what is our, what, like, what's our punch for strategy? Like, I'm not waiting for him to come to me. I'm gonna go take out that enemy first. What's that look like? We ask ourselves, what, what would he want? Like, I was just spent a few days away together. Before we left, we're like, what would the enemy want to have happen when we go away together? Well, he certainly wants us to fall into temptation. He wants us to divide against each other. Right? He, so when you know what it is he wants to do, then you can take steps towards light and kingdom and away from darkness. If I'm gonna have a parenting conversation or a work conversation, I think to myself, what would the enemy want to have happen here? So that if I start to see it unfold, I don't blame the people, which makes me judgmental, or myself, which makes me feel shame, Instead, I put right blame on an enemy who's trying to destroy God's kids doing God's work among God's house. He goes on to say in verse 23, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. <laughs> 
what, like, what does he mean with me? What's, like, what, what does it look like to be with God? What kind of activities? What does the gospel story actually look like? I think the gospel story sounds like the things that he's taught us about in his, in his book, things like he's about reconciliation, he's about redemption, he's about restoration, he's about rescue, he's about repair. Those are gospel activities. When I align myself with that, I can be confident I'm sitting in the center of God's will. In contrast, this spiritual enemy, this devil who's trying to destroy us, instead of reconciliation, he'd like us to remain in conflict, right? Instead of restoration, he is looking for our destruction. Instead of redemption, he'd like us to feel condemnation. Instead of rescue, he wants us to experience loss. Instead of repair, he wants us to feel broken. And what can happen to me is like, it can be like Tuesday and I can like wake up and look at my you know, calendar and I'm thinking, well, I'm, I don't really have on the agenda today any reconciliations, any rescues, any redemptions, but I'm definitely not gonna be trying to be conflicting and breaking and losing and condemning. I'm, it's like Tuesday, I'm like going to Target. Like I, it's just like, but here's a lie the enemy has for us church and that's that there's some kind of neutral middle ground we can idle in. There is no neutral middle ground with every thought and every word and every action. I'm either perpetuating for the kingdom of light or I am inadvertently, hopefully, aligning myself with darkness. And why, do I, why would I ever wanna do that? Because I'm sinful. Because I have a sin nature and it is my default button. It is familiar to me. We've talked about Genesis chapter four before, right? That's where God is talking to Cain and he says to Cain, hey, sin is crouching at your door because he's about to murder his brother. Sin is crouching at your door. He wants you. You have two choices. You can either master it or it'll master you. Cain did not master his sin and that sin led to the destruction of his brother and then of the loss of his own life. And that's, we have a choice. The sin that's crouching at my door is possibly very different than the sin that's crouching at David's door, right? My sin is based on my temperament, my childhood, my trauma, my lifehood, my experiences. Like my own sin is a cocktail perfectly concocted to make me step out of light and into darkness. And it, it's why it's so important for us to understand the tools we have in our spiritual tool belt. Because the Bible says in Isaiah chapter five that what can happen with sin is what is bitter actually starts to taste sweet. And what is sweet starts to taste bitter we don't even recognize where our sin nature is causing us to fall. And then we are, we are inadvertently participating in enemy activity, which is destroying the things that, that God is trying to build. And instead of destroying what God is trying to build, we, the reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the devil's work, not God's work. So here are a couple of tools we have in our tool belt when our sin nature comes calling for us, when we see temptation beckoning it at us with, that, with, its, with its very tempting finger. One of the tools we have in our tool belt is worship. Of course, the Bible says that he inhabits the praises of his people. What happens when I am sinning is I'm looking at myself. Like I want, I, I'm looking at other people. I'm looking at anything other than God. 
Worship aligns my gaze. It helps set my mind on things above. It helps renew my thinking. It helps me take thoughts captive. That's why he inhabits the praises of people. You find yourself tempted. You find yourself in darkness. Worship. It's a very powerful tool we have in our tool belt. One of the tools we have is scripture. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about this is what Jesus himself used when he was in, in the desert and in the wilderness and being tempted by the devil himself. He, he feasted and shared the fresh bread that he had just taken and the scripture that he had hidden in his heart. And if you don't have anything memorized, hidden in your heart, then you could do what I did in that fight with Todd and listen to the auto Bible, just stick it on. This is why we, we practice the reading the reading plan here at North Star because we wanna have fresh bread, the diet, the appetite for fresh biblical bread in our hearts and minds. So we recognize the devil's schemes when they're a mile away and not when they're in our rear view mirror and we've already fallen. Prayer. Prayer is one of the tools we have in our tool belts. And I, I just wanna be really clear, the Bible says we don't even have to have the words for it. He, in fact, God understands the groans of our heart that we haven't even articulated yet. If the only word you know of prayer is help, that is enough, he's coming. And we know what it looks like when he comes. Nothing can stand against him. He raises his arm, the ocean splits in half for us. He raises his arm, the sin of the world is born on it. And we are therefore have no condemnation, those of us in Christ Jesus. Like prayer is our opportunity to say, God, are you kidding me? I know I shouldn't want it, but I want what I don't want, like Paul will say. Like, help me, help me. The lion is coming for me. I don't even know what to do. He seems like he is of too large a scale. Come. He will never not come. He's incapable of not responding to your cry. He will come for you. Community. I mean, this is really important that we understand the role of community. This is why we shouldn't give up the habit of meeting together as some do because communities where we tell ourselves, hey, I know that sounds really loud out there, but that's not right. I know that seems like that is now normal. It's not. The, I heard what you're hap what's happening with you. I'm here to shore you up. I wanna hear what you have to confess and I'm gonna look back at you and give you the, the mercy that God gave me. I'm gonna be generous towards you in your need because that's how God has taught me to be. This is how community is formed. And there are false versions of community, but there is nothing like God's design for community here in the church. And I can promise you, the lion would like to destroy our community. Fasting. Fasting is, fasting is what reminds me the difference between what I want and what I need. Right? It exercises muscles and feeds my appetite and reminds me what it is that actually nourishes me. If there's an area of your life that you're finding yourself prone to sin in, fasting is a fabulous way to sharpen your focus and to attack that area of your sin. And the last one is my current go-to favorite tool to reach for when I feel the heat of the enemy around me when I feel my own sin crouching at my door and it's threatening to master me. Confession, confession is very powerful. If we confess with our mouth, right, he's faithful and just, First John 1, 9, he'll forgive us our sins and cleanse us from this unrighteousness that we are trying to hold on to. Matthew will talk about unconfessed sin is like it, it, it hides in the, what the Bible calls the dark corner of your heart. And what can happen, if we're just gonna be honest with each other, is that we can sometimes protect the dark corners of our hearts. 
because that sin worked for me at some point. Like, it, I liked it. It, it provided, it, it was an, a means to an end that I wanted. And I can keep that sin and hold on to that sin as if it has served me when the truth is unconfessed sin will hurt me. It will not serve me. I don't even know if this makes sense. And if you heard this following sentence out of context, it would not make sense. So don't tweet it in isolation. But like, (laughs) when I don't confess my sin, it's like I've given a bullet to the enemy and now all he has to do is shoot me. I've literally said, hey, this is my spiritual Achilles heel, bite here. Like, bite here, bite here, bite here, bite here, bite here. He's like, well, there she is alone again. I, I can just go right for the, I already know what's the deal. I already know where her sin has been crouching. I can go for her right there. And as a church, and, and <laughs> oh, there are so many things that can divide us. I, I mean, among even our faith families and our faith communities, we divide about ridiculous things. About, we divide about whether we raise our hands and how we take communion and how we get baptized. We, we fight about alcohol and homeschooling and politics and the use of the gifts of the spirit. And we, we fight about pro-life issues and we fight about sexuality. And, and the truth is we can fight about so much and then all of our energy and mind is spent focused on each other and dividing one another. And this was not God's design. And Paul had, the, Paul had this story happening in Rome. In Rome, what was going on is they were not fighting about politics and they were not fighting about alcohol and homeschooling. They were fighting about circumcision and how they observed the Sabbath and what kinds of foods they ate. Because you had these Jews who were busy understanding the law, trying to enforce the law, trying to live the law, commingling in faith communities with Gentiles who didn't even know the law, let alone were they gonna follow it. And they were fighting amongst each other, commingling and feeling judgmental of the other. And Paul writes them, accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. Don't stop passing judgment on another. Make up your mind, this is so much of our heads, not to put a stumbling block or an obstacle in the way of your brother or sister. Make every effort to do what leads to peace and do not destroy the work of God for the sake of In their case, it was food. But verse 20 is a really important verse for us to know in body life. Like, fill in your your own blank. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of politics, for the sake of, I, I don't know what your thing is, but everybody's got a thing. Like, don't destroy the work of God for that. For, for the Romans as well as us, Paul's point is the same. In matters of conscience, which are personal convictions regarding practices that are neither prohibited or commanded, there's two things we have to keep in mind. Refrain from judging or condemning believers whose opinions differ from your own. So you know what? Republican and Democrat, drinkers, teetotalers, homeschoolers, public schoolers, whatever issue divides you, absolutely you live according to your convictions, but don't let it divide the body. That's not how God's kids act with each other. And the second thing is refrain from exercising your freedom in ways that would pressure or encourage another believer to sin by going against their own conscience. I have a, a new son-in-law who has, is very clear that the Lord has told him not to eat meat. This is not what the Lord has told me. Right? Like, 
but it would make no sense for me to host his birthday party and it's a barbecue. Like it would make no sense for me to not be able to honor what it is that God has told him. Why would I divide over that thing? I, I, I wouldn't make any sense. If that's what God has told him, I need to do everything I possibly can over this disputable matter to build him up and not to put a stumbling block before him. That's how body life works. And I wrote in my notes, I'm kind of laughing to myself. I wrote, we are entering a tricky season because I was thinking like it's like an election year, but the truth of the matter is 2023 was pretty tricky, right? 2022 was pretty tricky. 2020 was very tricky. I have a hunch 2025 is gonna be awful tricky. So how about we just say, in life, <laughs> we have this enemy who's prowling around and he wants to divide us. And so we have to remember a couple of things as a family. The first one is churches are not perfect places, but it is our privilege to serve and protect it because I have a chance to be in other faith communities and I, I understand how, how unique North Star is. I mean, it's, it's not just generous, it's like wildly generous. That is not very common, right? And this is a church that has made the decision to value substance over style. I'm not saying we're not cool, but I'm just saying like, <laughs> you are, ain't nobody gonna see me walking on stage to a smoke machine, right? I mean, like this is not, this is not how this church has decided to spend their time and money, okay? So this is a really, really special church. But there are gonna be times this year, whether we're talking about current events or the election or whatever you wanna talk about, there are gonna be times where you're gonna go home after church and be like, I cannot believe they did not talk about that. I cannot believe they did not say that. Or there'll be other times you go to the church, you're like, I can't believe they went there. I cannot believe they said all that. I mean, they used that platform to say that. Are you kidding me? But I wanna be super clear with you. We are all just working out our faith with fear and trembling. And that rating, viewing, judging, liking, that kind of culture cannot permeate the church. We cannot, we've got, to, we've got to start from a place of loving the bride of Christ and not treating it like a Yelp review. That's not how the church, that's not how he left us. This isn't the work he has us here to do. He left us with two things, the great commandment and the great commission. Right? The Great Commission, Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples, baptize them, teach them. That's the work he left us here to do. And the Great Commandment, love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love unconditionally, at great expense, all the time, the way that I have loved you. We, it's, when I think about what God's goal is for us, when I walk into a room, well, I mean, just being honest with you, sometimes I wanna be the smartest person in the room. Sometimes I wanna be the coolest person in the room. Sometimes I wanna be the funniest person in the room. God has one goal for me, that I am the most loving person in every room I walk into. That's what he has left me here to do. And I think, unfortunately, church, as a reputation in this country, our kind, we, our reputation is that we wanna be the most right person that walks into every room. We're not winning anybody of the kingdom like that. He gave us a very, very clear commission, a very, very clear commandments. So for me, I just wanna finish up by showing you something that this is what it looks like in my mind when I'm trying to understand. <laughs> Look how sophisticated my mind is. <laughs> this is how it looks in my mind when I'm trying to remember it's not worth it to not master the sin at my at my 
doors. Like when, when I'm trying to remember, maybe I said that backwards. It is worth it, whatever. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, like when I'm trying to remember the things that we just talked about here today. I, this is thanks to uh, English theologian N.T. Wright. And he talks about how in the beginning of time, God's presence rested on the earth. We call that presence shalom in Hebrew, perfect presence. It was amazing. And it lasted a hot second until they ate the apple. And then there was a fall and God's perfect presence, his shalom got separated from the earth and the absence of peace is chaos. And I'm not gonna spend one more minute telling you that this world has been left in chaos. And then five times in our Old Testament and then finally permanently in Acts chapter two, he came to rest his presence down here in this earth. And now if you are a Christ follower, your, your spiritual passport is stamped as you live in the kingdom of heaven on earth. You don't live any long, you don't live in Shalom. Like I love some people in Shalom, I don't live there yet. But I have not been left in the chaos. I don't have to look like the chaos, I don't have to join the chaos. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm not in the chaos. I live in the kingdom of heaven on earth. But here's what we can do. Let's just honestly, we'll just be honest with ourselves. We can be like, I'm so glad I'm in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Like, now I just wanna surround myself with other people that are exactly like me. They look like me, dress like me, vote like me, play like me, vote, like go to church like me. Like, they're just like, like, hallelujah, we're in the kingdom of heaven on earth. But this Bible, as complicated as it is, pretty much boils down to two words. The first word is come. He's an invitational God and he's invited us into relationship and into his presence and into his kingdom and into his family. He's an, he, he says in our Bibles, he doesn't even want one of us to be lost. He's an invitational God and we should be the same. And the second word that sums up the entire thing is go. It's that great commandment. And where are we supposed to go? We're supposed to go down into the chaos. That's what he showed us he did. And I wanna be honest with you that every single time I have ever gone into the chaos, it has cost me something. Time, money, sleepless nights, gray hair, my reputation. Like that, that's the call. I'm supposed to go into the chaos and not turn around and look exactly like them. I'm not supposed to go in the chaos and turn up my nose and judge them. I'm not supposed to go into the chaos and, and swim around and just see what it feels like for a little bit. I'm supposed to go into the chaos with one goal, one objective, go and make disciples. Go love them into the kingdom. Be merciful so they know I'm merciful. Be generous so they know I'm generous. Be forgiving because that's what I am. And I'm trying to show them what it looks like to experience the kingdom of heaven on earth. Of course, it's gonna cost us something. It cost him everything to come into the chaos. It cost him his very life. So as, uh, gosh, as we close here, I, I can't, um, we're more likely to remember this in the moments when we most need it, if we see it in our heads as a picture. So However you draw spiritual warfare in your mind, whatever it looks like to see God and the power of the cross disarm the enemy that is coming for you. Make sure you understand what the coming for you looks like. This is not cartoon stuff. This is not, this is not kindergarten stuff. The enemy wants you to die and he wants everything about you destroyed. But that's not God's story. He's coming to make all things new. He's coming to redeem and restore and rescue and repair.
and he wants to invite us into it. And he's telling us, hey, look at me, look at me, look at me. I'll take care of him. I know how to raise my arm. Oh, you guys, let's pray. Jesus, I love how you love the church. I love how this was your design. I love that this was your idea. Teach us to protect her and serve her and come for her. Help us know how to pull those weapons out of our belt, worship and prayer and scripture and community and fasting and confession. We start right now, confess to you what the dark corners of our heart look like. We bring them to you. Jesus, hear us loud and clear. We are so grateful you have saved us. We are so grateful that you picked us up Now Jesus teaches what it looks like to walk in that authority and to exercise that kind of power and to be unafraid of any design of any enemy who's coming against us. Teach us what it looks like to, in fact, go first to him and put him in his place and disarm him and show him what his ultimate fate is, death and destruction. Jesus, we are all yours sew us together however you like that we may reflect to a world a different kind of being a different kind of way so jesus it is with the authority and power you give me as a co-heir with you and that finger kind of power that lives inside me that i say here together with all of these saints and i ask that you would release an anointing on us that today we would be loving, today we would be merciful, today we would be powerful, not in our own might, but in yours. And that people in our life would notice it, that our families would notice how loving we are when we walk in the room, our neighbors would notice how generous and merciful we are towards them, that people would notice at work, and then they would ask us for the reason for the hope that we have. Jesus. We love you and we trust you. And all of God's people said, amen.